Hello, and welcome back to the Neurodiverging Podcast. My name is Danielle Sullivan, and I am your host. Today, I am so happy to welcome an amazing guest to the program. We have Dr. Bibi Pirayesh, who is an educational therapist and learning rights advocate based in Los Angeles, California. She spent the last 15 years working with hundreds of children, parents, teachers, and schools to enhance the lives of children with learning disabilities. She also regularly speaks on neurodiversity, educational therapy, and learning disability as a social justice issue on podcasts and stages as, and as a university lecture. So I'm so thrilled to have her today. Dr. Bibi is a first-generation immigrant and English language learner, and she draws on a unique multicultural perspective, as well as years of specialized education on these topics and over a decade of community experience and advocacy. She also holds a bachelor's degree in neuroscience and education from the University of Pittsburgh, as well as her master's degree in developmental psychology from Columbia. And she has worked as a learning specialist and an educational therapist in private practice for over a decade And in her master's, her work focused primarily on children's development of mathematical thinking and cognitive neuroscience. And if you are a listener to the podcast, you know that I have a significant interest in neuroscience, although I am not a professional. And so I was very excited to talk to her about that today as well. Today on the podcast, we're talking about what a learning disability is, both kind of practically from our lived everyday experience, as well as from a systems perspective, what it's legally or educationally defined as. We're also talking about what an educational therapist does and what Dr. Beebe does in her practice and why it's so needed. And then we're spending a good amount of time on talking about the social justice aspects of a learning disability. Why is learning disability a social justice issue? And how can we advocate on the ground as as neurodiversity advocates, as social justice advocates, to redistribute equity in our educational system? We had just a fascinating talk, and I'm just so excited for you to hear it. Right before we dive in, I just want to say a huge thank you to my patrons over at patreon.com slash neurodiverging. Patrons, throw in a couple of bucks a month to support this podcast and in return, get perks like ad-free podcast downloads, coaching resources and coaching videos, group coaching videos, access to all of our educational webinar recordings and lots of other cool stuff. So if you're ever interested in becoming a patron and supporting this podcast, please check out patreon.com slash neurodiverging. Thank you so much to everybody who supports this podcast. We couldn't do it without you. And now without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Bibi Parish. Thank you so much for joining us on the Neurodiverging Podcast, Dr. BP. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, as I was just saying, so excited you're here. I know you have been in the field of uh, educational therapy for learning disabilities for a very long time and have done a ton of advocacy work. So thank you so much for being on Neurodiverging. Um, I was hoping to get started for just the purposes of this conversation. We've talked about learning disabilities a lot on the program and other contexts, but for the purposes of what you do, um, would you be willing to give us kind of a working definition of learning disability um, in terms of the the kids you work with? You know, the the way that we define learning disability um, really has a lot to do with the way that it is defined under the law, because um, so much of the work that we do has to do with the types of services that children are able to get in in the school system. So um, obviously the way that it is defined is, you know, a, a significant discrepancy between um, intelligence and ability and a, a specific skill. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily myself 
define it in that way. I, I really see um, a learning disability as anything that has to do with our learning that gets in the way of our functionality. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, that's not really the the way that we, we define it under the law. And so there are a lot of um, people that um, I feel would fall under that category who don't necessarily qualify for the diagnosis, mm-hmm. um, which leads to this sort of, uh, you know, large uh, portion of the population that fall under a gray area. So um, students, children, and, you know, some adults who really do struggle in terms of their functioning, but don't quite even qualify. Um, But yeah, for me, it it really has to do with everyday functioning. Um, But the way that we've defined it in the DSM or, you know, under IDEA obviously is different from that. Thanks so much. That's really helpful right away to just get there's sort of two definitions straight off the kind of uh, educational systems definition or the legal definition versus sort of the the practical on the ground definition of can we do what we want to do <laughs> effectively um, right. and, and access the things we want to access without significant barrier. So thank you so much. And so I know you're an educational therapist. I don't think we've had any educational therapists on the program before. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and I feel like this is a relatively, I, well, maybe you can tell us when I was a kid, I'm a late diagnosed autistic. So I wasn't identified till I was in my thirties. And I'm certainly along with many of our listeners, one of those people who maybe could have used support in school, but didn't, didn't function poorly enough, masked very highly. Um, and so were there, were there even learning ther- like learning therapists in the 1990s? How did this field, you know, you don't have to be a historian to field, but from your knowledge, like when did this sort of start becoming a thing and what are some of the things you do to help students um, like access their education? And Sure. Yeah. I mean, educational therapy, I had never heard of educational therapy <laughs> until I sort of, you know, was at, outside grad school, yeah. um, was kind of, I, I really fell into it by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a very, it is actually an older field. So there are, uh, people, you know, kind of like the, the, the founding members, it's a field that came over from Europe, um, to the U S and has been around for a long time. Um, however, it's very different. It's very different than, you know, for example, like a speech language pathologist or an occupational therapist, um, you know, fields that are very clearly defined based on state licensing, et cetera. Um, it's a very different field. It's one of the reasons I think that I, I like it so much is that there's so much more flexibility. Um, but uh, I, I, so I'm, I'm sure there were educational therapists back in the 90s, whether they were, um, you know, identified as such, I'm not sure. Certainly in the public school system, we don't have anything called an educational therapist. Um, In a lot of private schools now, you tend to see, I mean, in certain areas, so there are certain areas where I feel like the field is more well-known, like West Los Angeles, where I have my practice. And then there are many, many areas where people have never even heard the term. Um, I've heard it used sort of somewhat interchangeably with the term learning specialist. Um, You know, some people use uh, that term, but um, an educational therapist is essentially or should be a person who has training in different types of learning differences and learning disabilities and understands how the learning process is impacted and can therefore teach explicitly to those differences. Um, I think that probably 
something that is somewhat similar, I would not call it equivalent, but somewhat similar in the public school system um, is maybe like a special education professional. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely think that um, one of the things that we see that I believe is some, somewhat problematic in our, in our public education system is that most of the work is centered around accommodations and modifications, whereas educational therapy is really based around remediation mm -hmm. um, in the places where remediation is possible. I mean, obviously there's also um, accommodations, modifications, advocacy, all of that. Um, but you know, I, I think one of the reasons that people seek out educational therapists is that they're not able to um, get the kind of targeted uh, expert intervention for children um, in the school system. And so, um, you know, we've sort of created, unfortunately, I think it's a, it's a problem. We've created a private economy um, around that. That tends to be what happens a lot in the U.S. Um, so there, you know, I, I would love to see more of a merging of, of the fields, but um, currently it's sort of its own very separate field and it's not covered by most insurance um, which is another reason why a lot of people may not have heard of it and, and may not know that they that there is you know something like this that they can access. Um, but there is a, a national organization. It's called the Association of Educational Therapists. It's a really good way to try to find an ET if you're looking for one. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of a um, some in, in in a lot of areas an unknown field. Yeah. Thank you. That's so helpful. I'll put the link to the educational therapist website, the national organization down below so folks can check it out. When I just have a follow-up question around the, the term remediation. So when you offer that to the students you work with and their families, what kind of, what are some, is it skill building or what are some of the like more specific, I guess, areas or, or interventions that you're going to be using to, to offer that? I came to educational therapy from sort of a science background, mm -hmm. I was always interested in, um, you know, how learning happens in the brain. Um, so I sort of came from, from that neuroscience background. And I, I was also very interested in um, how that translates to teaching, uh, which I know it's like a big, it's been sort of like a buzz, uh, trendy thing for a long time now, but I'm not sure that we really have any real connection between neuroscience um, research and, and education yet. Yeah. Um, however, I, I would say that that is the one place. So when we talk about remediation, that is the one place where you can really begin to see this connection. So um, I, I, you know, I think we have to be careful about the word remediation because the point is never to remediate or fix or cure mm. the disability. Um, however, there, you know, there, there are ways because the brain is plastic um, to help build new neuronal pathways that can really help with that functionality that I, I mentioned earlier. So, you know, a, a really sort of um, more simple example that people can can um, usually uh, visualize or, or think about is the example of a specific learning disability in reading or something that falls under the larger kind of umbrella term of dyslexia. So, um, you know, I, I have students who who come to me 
um, with that diagnosis or some without the diagnosis, but just unable to read without really um, the, the type of targeted reading intervention that could be really, really beneficial to them. Mm -hmm. So that type of intervention would be an example of remediation. So you, you can do a lot of like drill and kill because mm -hmm. that's what's required to build new neuronal pathways. But um, all the different neurodevelopmental constructs, so the underlying skills that we have to have in place for, for learning to be able to occur in the ways that we expect it in a classroom setting, um, those are the areas that a lot of students are struggling with. But those are things that you can remediate. So you can increase digit span. You can build memory pathways. You can train the brain to be able to tell apart the sounds of speech if it doesn't naturally do so. So the, the kind of work that you would do to create those pathways is what I would consider remediation. Thank you. That's so helpful. I really appreciate that. So it sounds like you have to have specialist knowledge in a lot of different areas in order to create like a learning plan for a child or or you're working with a ton of different professionals to to access all that. So you must be very busy <laughs> with each client you have. Yes, I, I would say you, you have to do all of those things. I take a very, um, I don't know, somewhat, I would call it like a boutique approach mm -hmm. because I am a big believer that you know, you can't just, and you know, this is not just for educational therapy. I think this is true for all therapy. And I think this is true for all education. Um, you can't just sort of isolate a student in a one hour or 50 minute session in your week um, and expect to have profound changes. I, I really believe that you have to get to know that student. You have to get to know that student's school environment, their family environment, their you know, like social, emotional relationships, because we know all those things impact learning. So um, for each of my, each of my clients, I would say, maybe they take like one or two hours of my time in terms of actual uh, client sessions, mm -hmm. but they take a lot more of my uh, brain space. Um, I think, when I, I sort of take on the whole family. So as a result, I do have a very small practice. Mm -hmm. I, I only work with, you know, a, a limited number of students. You know, I, I have people who also work with me for me, yeah. but generally speaking, I, I keep it small because my approach is so, um, I guess you could say thorough. Yeah. It's sort of just, you know, my philosophy of education. So um, that's the way that I keep it. Not everyone does it that way. And it's not mm -hmm. to say that, other types of, you know, other approaches don't work, but I found that this is what works best. And then, of course, within that, you do, you have to have, and this is part of the work of educational therapy, in my opinion. So you have to have active uh, conversations and an ongoing relationship with other professionals who are in that, in that child's life, like their therapist, for example, their teacher, their coach, whoever, um, plays a role in their life. Um, and so the, the educational therapist, in my opinion, is sort of plays the role of um, someone who, who's sort of like the, the leader of like the hub and they're the one that, uh, that that's in contact with everyone and really manages. There's a lot of case management, I think. Yeah. That goes, um, because, because yeah, children are not, you know, they don't, they don't grow up in a bubble. They grow up in, you know, a, a real world. And so you have to be actively involved in the real world. Yeah. 
there's a lot of the community aspect to raising kids, not just with the kind of parenting piece or the uh -huh. teaching piece, but that we need all these people to be talking to each other. And especially with a kiddo with any kind of neurodivergence or challenges or learning disability. So that's amazing. Yeah. So I know you do a lot of work and you referred to it earlier around sort of the um, social justice issues in um, how our culture, educational system, legal system, all the, all the systems <laughs> approach um, kids who need anything different, I guess, than the standard conventional um, education system, which I would argue is like a lot of children <laughs> and maybe even most children. Um, and for your reference, I have uh, a eight and 10 year old who are ADHD autistic, who we actually started homeschooling during the pandemic. So we've talked about that on the program before in part because, and we're like, not rich, rich, but like rich enough white people in a very liberal area in Colorado with very good school systems and really um, teachers who actually have a good amount of support and funds at their disposal. And it was still really challenging to get resources and support um, that actually worked for my kids. Um, and so we ended, we ended up homeschooling, which I'm very happy about, but also makes me very frustrated on a larger level because it does feel like you're pulling the the white person card of, you know, instead of staying with the system and trying to make the system better, just yanking them out of it. Um, but at the same time, the system was like actively harming, like you could see it in my, my kids' personalities. And so I feel like when I talk to homes, the homeschooling is pretty popular in Colorado. Um, and there's a lot of neurodivergent families and families with kids with disabilities who end up homeschooling. And I hear that repeated a lot that we don't actually want to necessarily be homeschooling. And we also can't figure out how to like make the system better for our kids. Um, and we know that we are leaving the system uh, even more inequitable because as you said, it it creates this privatized, um, you know, a bunch of privatized, you know, resources instead of it all being, you know, of equal access to everybody. So I would love to hear, <laughs> I, I know you've worked in this area for a lot longer than I have. I would love to hear any advice you have or suggestions you have around how to advocate for kids with learning disability within the school system or how to help push the legal system to and, the, and all the systems are all integrated, right? To be more inclusive and to um, make all the pushing we do as parents actually like worth something. Cause I feel like so many of us have experienced just pouring ourselves into the IEP meetings and the counselor visits and all the therapy visits and just not really getting much back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's a million dollar question. I know, I know, but I figured <laughs> if anyone has ideas, you know, well, you know, I, <laughs> I really think um, that the, the first step has to be just kind of recognizing, acknowledging and labeling um, the system for what it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, one of the places in which people maybe get a little confused is that we tend to think that our education system is based on these, you know, sort of democratic ideals. Um, and a lot of us who, who come up uh, against these types of issues think, oh, well, maybe it's me or it's just not working for my child or, or you know, whatever it is. But the fact of the matter is that the system um, is ableist from the ground up. 
And the reason for that is, you know, that that are ideologies, the ideologies that that the system is built on and reflects are quite ableist. And I say that because uh, the way that our education system is created is that we've sort of put, we've sort of said, this is uh, what it means to be educated, or this is what it means to be like, let's say an A student, or this is what it means to, you know, what a, a curriculum should look like. So there's sort mm-hmm. of this idealized um, version of things. And then anything that, you know, doesn't fit that is othered and kind of pushed out. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so what we have is not an education system that is a reflection of what actually exists, which like you said, is, you know, many people who don't learn in that very specific way, um, but rather this very rigid, very narrow way of thinking about, you know, education and learning. So, um, so as a, as a result of that, everything that we do in special education, it's almost like the way that it's almost like charity, right? So, you know, what are the different ways that we can help these poor people who don't quite fit into this, um, as opposed to acknowledging the fact that no, you know, those people are part of the majority. um, And, and our education system should be reflective of everyone. So I I really am of the belief that the most important thing that all of us have to do is to be politically conscious and politically active mm-hmm. because the decisions are political decisions it's basically you know who we are voting for how we are writing our laws you know we again like to think of um special education in general or the way that we you know uh, talk about our, you know, IDEA and all of that, mm-hmm. you know, it's these like amazing, um, this amazing legislation that grew out of the civil rights movement, et cetera. Um, and of course, you know, it's maybe better now than it was yeah. in some ways before. However, uh, we need to also understand that the law is very specifically written to put the burden on the parents, mm-hmm. which means that parents of means or parents with resources are going to be able to provide things for their children that parents without can't and that is at its very core obviously a social justice issue um but you know i i think even outside of that i'm I'm really glad that you mentioned that you know even having all of these resources um you're you're finding it difficult i certainly face that so i i work in a very wealthy part of one of maybe the wealthiest parts of the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm able to see parents with every imaginable resource um, have their children regularly fail in their schooling experiences. So what that really shows us is that it's not it's not really about money. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is about ideology. It's about the way that we see and frame difference. Um, and until we can shift that, I don't really see much else mm-hmm. shifting. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's really the reason that, you know, I always encourage people to try to get to the to the roots of it and then to push back in those places. One way, for example, when I when I talk to groups of teachers and educators and, you know, educational therapists, other people like me, um, I always ask them to think about when you when you're advocating for a child or you think you're advocating for a child, are you really advocating for the child or are you advocating 
for the system? Are you mm-hmm. advocating for upholding the system and, and asking it to please just allow this child to somehow access or fit in? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to recognize that shifting that um, and, and sort of taking the burden off the student and putting it back on the system um, is really the most important step that we all have to take. Um, and that's that's a political step, mm-hmm. not necessarily political in terms of like, we're going to go out marching protest, or, although yeah. I wish we would, but just political in terms of our own consciousness and our mm-hmm. own way of thinking about it. Um, and I think the more of us are able to do that and the more we're able to help students recognize that because students naturally assume that it's them, mm-hmm. um, it must be them and not, you know, um, the systems in which they're they're trying to to live um the the more we do that the the better the, the chances of a different kind of future will be i know that that's not very pra- you know like a very like here's step one two three but i i really do think that it has to begin with that political consciousness building yeah and that sort of um awareness building or 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 i'm trying to think of the the feminist term for it, the consciousness raising right the figuring out um that you're not by yourself, but that you are within a system that's being experienced by all these people um, is, as you said, maybe not a one, two, three, but I think it's one of the most important processes and just our general individual well-being too, is knowing what we're responsible for and what is, how do I want to say, um, maybe just that in my work with families and neurodivergent adults, I see a lot of people shaming themselves or having internalized ableism around things that are not really anything they can control, but are, um, as you said, the system working exactly as it should be working and thus, you know, putting a burden where uh, we can't shift it ourselves independently or individually. Yeah. Right. And our, our school system, you know, maybe we don't, we don't, uh, talk about this maybe as much as we should, but our school system is the primary place in which we teach and normalize that shame. Mm-hmm. So it's the place in which we teach children that some people are in the in-group and some people are in the out-group and, uh, and, and that there is a hierarchy and this is your place in it and these are the negative feelings that are associated with that, as opposed to no, everybody has a, a right to exist, yeah. um, whatever sort of capacity they, they mm-hmm. exist in. So um, I, I think one of the reasons that we we see so much pushback from our, our school system is that one of its primary functions is to teach and normalize the shame that goes around difference. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that Oftentimes, just recognizing that is a really important paradigm shift for people. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. So on one level, the effort to diversify schools and school leadership and educate teachers and, you know, I work sometimes as an educational trainer and give presentations around like, you know, inclusivity for, say, autistic pupils, right, or teaching teachers um, some basic knowledge about autism and ADHD so that they can approach their students with more kindness, honestly. Um, But to some extent, it sounds like that the school system can't um, 
coexist, this sort of liberal ideal of the diversified school system that accepts all difference and promotes difference can't coexist with the foundational paradigm of, you know, we're going to do it this one ideal way, as you say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, listen, I, I do think that the small steps that we take help, mm -hmm. they help. Um, but I also think that we need to to recognize that unless we're willing to interrogate, you know, what I, I would say are the epistemological roots mm -hmm. of our systems, um, we're essentially a lot of times just changing like the window dressing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think this is something that that we really saw happen, for example, um, you know, with the whole like DEI, yeah. the diversity, equity, inclusion movement that suddenly like became really big after like George Floyd protests and all that. Um, and then all of a sudden corporate America um, has all this like DEI training and this, that and the other. Does that mean that it's completely useless? No, I mean, bringing these things into kind of our, the forefront of our consciousness, mm -hmm. sure, is good. But can you really have diversity, equity, inclusion in like a corporate setting? Mm -hmm. No, I think a lot of it is, you know, and now it's created this whole other, um, you know, industry, mm -hmm. uh, a private industry and like, you know, capitalist industry now mm -hmm. around, you know, something that's like a social justice concept, which is yeah. almost laughable. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but that that tends to be what happens. And I think that it, it's something that we have to be really aware of, because I do think I do think that we, you know, we're currently going. There's revolutionary things happening. I mean, even around this, the concept of neurodivergence and neurodiversity and, you know, people really stepping out and 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 thinking about their experiences um, there are big shifts happening. And I think we have to be really careful to make sure that all of that doesn't then just get engulfed um, by the larger dominant system and essentially just become like a rebranding of the old mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, so so it's important that um, that we remain diligent and critical um, and don't just sort of like fall into, oh, well, now you know, we, we have these terms, so everything is okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, because again, coming back to this question of functionality, the question always has to be, how does this translate into the material differences of people's lives? Mm -hmm. you know, to what extent does it change? Has it changed that? Or is it changing that? Um, and if we're still in a world in which people feel like they need to pull their children out of the school system, mm -hmm. um, then, then we haven't, make the changes. Yeah. Up. Yeah. Thank you. That's fantastic. I really appreciate that. Um, I want to make sure we have time to talk because you've done this project that is maybe its own kind of consciousness raising the difference, not deficit project. And I know I saw it on your website, so I'd love it if you could tell the audience just a little bit about that, how it came about, what, what the purpose is. It's something that grew out of the pandemic, but it really goes back to um, my belief about uh, about the importance and value of people's personal stories and their lived experiences. Um, you know, when when you ask me, you know, 
what are some important steps that we can take in terms of changing our our political uh, lives in many mm-hmm. ways. I really think it goes back to our personal stories because the personal is political. Yeah. Uh, and this is really an initiative to, to encourage people to share their personal stories of how, uh, of how they have experienced ableism, of how they come up uh, either, you know, in, in, in ways in which they're able to fight or in ways in which they feel very much defeated by, because all of the stories matter, not just mm-hmm. stories of triumph. Um, you know, just in terms of what are what how are we experiencing, for example, the education system, whether you're a student or a parent or a teacher or an advocate, you know, however it is that you're you're coming across that. Because I think that the more we hear each other's stories Mm -hmm. the more we remember that we are the system we are the most powerful components of the system Um, and the more shared stories we have the more we know that the system is not working for us and so it needs to change Mm -hmm. Um, so that's really the that that's really the goal of of that initiative and it, it did grow out of the isolation that i felt everybody was feeling while we were in the pandemic mm-hmm. um, which in you know in many ways lifted the veil on on the the struggles that people really have but were you know not really able to voice before the pandemic how can people find out more about you if they would say like to book a training with you or learn more about your services Sure. Um, so probably, you know, I my website is sort of the place that has the most information. It's www.oneofonekids.org. Um, and my speaking page is on that, our community page is on that, all of the social media and everything. Um, I also tend to be pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, it's sort of where uh, I... I, I sort of treat it maybe the way that a lot of people use Twitter, uh, where I, you know, I, I, I engage with um, a lot of what's happening in the in the larger culture around education and and special education. So that's also a really good way to find me. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Vivi. We really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for this platform. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. I hope that this conversation was inspiring and enlightening for you. If you enjoyed, please hit the subscribe or the like to let us know. It really helps us out. Please also check out Dr. Piriyesh's social, her LinkedIn and her website are down below, as well as her Difference is Not Deficit project, which is an amazing community effort to promote the importance of seeing learning disability as a social justice issue. I hope you will join me in participating in that. All the links are down below as well as the link to our Patreon. Again, is patreon.com slash neurodiverging. We could not do this podcast without you patrons. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, please be well and please remember that we are all in this together. Does your father know you're listening to this podcast? Well, when you're done, why don't you stop by and check out a show that is 100% dad-approved, Dadages. Hi there, I'm Chad Higgle. If you're looking for useful insights and practical advice you can actually apply to work, 
family, education, philanthropy, and just life in general, check out Dadages. That's D-A-D-A-G-E-S, wherever you listen to your podcasts.